thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty, and I'm delighted to have you. And I think today will probably be a challenge to many if they grew up with the theology, I guess you could say, the understanding of the flow of history that I grew up with in the evangelical churches that I attended. And as I mentioned last week, one's eschatology, the view of where we're headed and what's going to happen as we head there, influences the way we look at political decisions and map out the political actions that we want to take. I hope it became clear last week that what I was saying is that oftentimes in politics, the Christians respond in a reactive sense, stopping the next bad thing that comes along. Little do we sit down and say, how do we plan to restore justice and righteousness, the foundations of God's throne? And what do we need to do today? And what arguments do we need to make today to move forward righteousness and justice in our society? Now, you might say, well, David, you're overlooking the fact that multiple states got together in the early 2000s and began passing marriage amendments. And I would say that's exactly true. But the reason they were passing them was again to stop a bad thing, not so much to reestablish in the minds and the imaginations of people what it means to be human as male and female and the beauty and the glory of God represented in the marital relationship. That was certainly not how we argued the cases in front of the United States Supreme Court. So again, it was a negative planning rather than a positive planning. Now, why again is this important? Let me go back to what I read a few weeks ago just to cement it in our thinking, because I have to keep cementing it in my own thinking. It's from Law and Revolution by Harold Berman, The Formation of the Western Legal Tradition. And you'll recall that I had said to him that the successful revolutions of the Papal Revolution, the Germanic Revolution, the start of the Protestant Reformation, and the English Reformation, the Puritans in England, were based on Christian eschatology, which he says, in turn, was based on the Judaic vision of history as moving toward a climax. Now, he notes the Hebrew people conceived of time as continuous, irreversible, and historical, leading to ultimate redemption at the end. They also believed, however, that time has periods in it. It is not cyclical, but may be interrupted or accelerated. Now, we're going to talk about these interruptions in the Hebraic understanding of time today because they fit into our understanding of eschatology today. But they noted it develops. The Old Testament is a story not merely of change, Berman says, but of development, of growth of movement toward the messianic age. That's the Old Testament, right? Very uneven movement to be sure, with much backsliding, but nevertheless a movement toward. Christianity, however, added an important element to the Judaic concept of time. 
that of transformation of the old into the new. Now that's very important to appreciate here because while many Christians believe that Jesus has brought the individual new life, he has not yet really initiated his kingdom or his kingdom is only spiritual. There's no material aspect to it. And what I mean by material is there's no true representation in any sort of organized way, I guess you could say, of the presence of the kingdom. It's, it's all internal, all spiritual, pietistic. And they said, no, there's a transformation of the old age into the new age. Now we see that in Colossians 1.13. You have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. It doesn't say you will be transferred. It says you have been transferred. We now live in a new kingdom. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it talks about you are a new creation. It is a new creation. We live in a new creation. So the older view was the kingdom of God has come and it is progressing. It is moving forward. Now Berman goes on to say this. The Hebrew Bible became the Old Testament. Its meaning transformed by its fulfillment in the New Testament, which goes with the Puritan idea that the Old Testament is the New Testament hidden and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. There's a continuity that takes place, though, as Berman said, there are interruptions in the flow of history, obviously Jesus Christ being the big interruption. But he goes on to say, in the story of the resurrection, death was transformed into a new beginning. The times were not only accelerated, but regenerated. This introduced a new structure of history in which there was a fundamental transformation of one age into another. This transformation, it was believed, could only happen once. The life, death, and resurrection of Christ was thought to be the only major interruption in the course of linear time from the creation of the world until it ends altogether. Now, most eschatologies today, I should say, or at least the predominant eschatology today, is that there will be another cataclysmic sort of event, interruption, and that will be the rapture of the church. But Berman is here speaking historically, and at the time of these reformations, but that was not the view of the church. So going back to last week, the Puritans would have said, certainly in the 1600s, oh my goodness, our Constitution says that all power is inherent in the people. We must begin to change that. And they wouldn't have thought, but that might take centuries, so we're going to be out of here soon. Never mind. Let's just stop this bad thing for right now. See what I'm saying? How that works, how our eschatology affects the way we look at things, and why the Puritans were so busy in bringing about reformation that included law and an organic growth and development in law which no longer exists within the American legal tradition or, to be honest, really the Western legal tradition, or at least no growth in relation to God and the turning point of history, Jesus Christ. There's a development, but it's a development by man autonomous from God. That's how you get abortion and same-sex marriage, in the development of the law. Now, I want to put this in a little bit of an added context 
something that I did not know. Maybe I was taught it, and if so, I forgot it, but I swear to you, I, I don't remember ever being told this. Most of us, if you're my age, or, or at least let's say you, you, you were going to school in the, sometime up into the 60s or maybe 70s, you knew that time was counted as B.C. and A.D. And the marking point was Jesus. That's what determined whether something was B.C. or A.D. B.C. being before Christ, A.D. being Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. Now, here's what was fascinating to me about that. I'm quoting now from a gentleman named R.G. Collingwood, who wrote a book called The Idea of History. It's been very influential in the understanding of history among moderns. He was definitely not a Christian. He was an avowed evolutionist. Yet he was still trying to make sense of the flow of history. Now, here's what he said, and here's what fascinated me so much about what I just expressed, that Jesus Christ was the turning point of history, and all history was to be understood in light of that. And here's what he says. This is Collingwood now. The conception of history is, in principle, the history of the world. In principle, right? Or struggles like that between Greece and Persia between Rome and Carthage. They're looked at impartially, with an eye not to the success of one combatant, but to the upshot of the struggle from the standpoint of posterity became commonplace. In other words, essentially history is sort of the, the concept of synthesis, thesis, antithesis, new synthesis comes about. It's very evolutionary, pantheistic in its evolution, I guess you could say, because that's really what it is. Uh, not really to be judged as right or wrong in terms of any standard, but just this is what's happened. Then he has this, the symbolism of this universalism, this idea, this conception that history is in principle the history of the whole world, is the adoption of a single chronological framework for all historical events. The single universal chronology invented by Asador of Seville in the 7th century and popularized by the Venerable Bede in the 8th, dating everything forward and backward from the birth of Christ, still shows where this idea, this conception of a universal history came from. So, in other words, this is exactly what Berman had said earlier in his book that I quoted a few weeks ago. Berman said this, the reformers put themselves at the beginning and end of a new secular time. They projected backward in the past in order to project forward into the future. They saw themselves at a turning point in history, the beginning of a new age which they thought would be the final age before the last judgment. This was a new interruption within the Christian era. So do you see what is being said here is that the Puritans, essentially, were taking this idea, and of course it, it came from before then, that's what he, was, what he was saying, with Isidore and the Venerable Bede, that Jesus Christ is the turning point of history. And so, as Colossians says, he's the firstborn of all creation. He's also the firstborn of recreation, that he might have preeminence in all things, all things, the past 
and the future must be understood in relationship to Jesus Christ. And if you recall a few weeks ago, we said as we look to the future, we interpret the, the past and the present. Remember the example I gave about it's a beautiful day and you want to have a picnic. So that determines what you now think you need to do, the past, which becomes the present of making the picnic for the sake of making the lunch for the sake of the picnic. Now, next week I'm going to cover something that, again, I never heard of. It lays a foundation for why, as Christians, we have a living hope, even when the present moment would seem to indicate everything is headed towards collapse and indeed the eschatology of defeat and loss and the shrinking of the church and there'll be no faith left. It looks like, yeah, that's coming true. Now, I wanna say this about what is about to follow. The view of, of eschatology that I'm going to lay out rooted in some important passages in the Old Testament that show the development of history and the direction in which it's headed is not fundamental to being a Christian, okay? It doesn't put anybody's salvation into question. The basics of the Christian belief have been set forth from the early centuries of the early church in the Apostles' Creed. We believe in God the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his son. The explanation of what that means, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the communion, the fellowship, the resurrection of the body and the life thereafter. So apart from the life thereafter and the resurrection of the body, the essentials of the Christian doctrine of salvation aren't rooted in eschatology. But what I'm about to share will show that when you rip soteriology out of the context of protology, which is, in the Bible, cosmology, it will change your eschatology. Now again, why is this so important for Christians to understand as we look to the future, particularly with respect to law, government, and politics? Well, it was stated by Harold Berman. Again, let me repeat what I said a few weeks ago. Berman says this in Law and Revolution, Puritanism in England and America. Now that was in America in the 16 and early 1700s or so. And Pietism, its counterpart on the European continent, were the last great movements within the institutional church to influence the development of Western law in any fundamental sense. In other words, the development of an organic law rooted in God in space and time headed somewhere, the church lost it. It lost it because it lost an eschatology of hope and positive direction. And as Berman said, when the church lost its eschatology and then the church became more liberal and social action oriented, which is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about for the glory of God and the sake of righteousness and justice, caring about what our laws say. It said secular eschatologies, nihilism and Marxism rushed in to take their place. Now, where do I wanna take this today? I wanna to begin with something that I began to read and then I went looking for support to determine if what I was thinking was crazy. And it began in Isaiah, 54. So I began to read this literally about 
three weeks ago. It says, Shout for joy, O barren one, you who have borne no child. Break forth into joyful shouting and cry aloud, you who have not travailed. Referring there, obviously, to having children. For the sons of the desolate one will be more numerous than the sons of the married one, says the Lord. Now, I wrote above those sentences about the sons of the desolate one and the sons of the married woman. I wrote above the word desolate one, Gentiles, question mark, and married woman, Jews. See, I'd never thought of those verses as referring to sort of people groups or nations or categories of persons viewed from within or outside the covenant of God. But I put the question mark there. And then as I read on down, I read these words, for your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. For the Lord has called you like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit, like even a wife of one's youth when she is rejected. And I realized, well, maybe, maybe indeed the married woman is the nation of Israel as God's covenant people. Maybe that is the case. Now, here's what's also interesting in between these verses about the sons of the desolate one and the son of the married woman and the verses about your husband is your maker you're like a rejected wife that he's forsaken for a time we see these verses they're in verses two and three enlarge the place of your tent stretch out the curtains of your dwellings spare not lengthen your cords and strengthen your pegs for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your descendants will possess nations, and they will resettle the desolate cities. So a desolation is envisioned here where the people of Israel, their tent will spread, and their descendants will possess the nations. Are you hearing overtones here of go and disciple the nations? Go to all the nations. Go to first Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, then the outermost parts of the earth. Mm. So as I was trying to understand this passage, I ran into a commentary by Thomas Goodwin. Uh, a 17th century Puritan who was the chaplain to Oliver Cromwell and Cromwell was one of those Puritans who helped overthrow the monarchy and the divine right of kings aspects of things in England and, and ultimately after Cromwell died and his son proved to not be a worthy successor the monarchy was restored but subject to Parliament it was a tremendous change in the organization of government and where authority and power was held within civil government. So this is how Thomas Goodwin is. Now I'm not going to read you what Goodwin wrote because it's quite long, but this is what he said in summary fashion. He took the words in Isaiah 54 about the tents and spreading them back to the Noahic covenant. Now, listen to this. So, after the flood, well, I should say before the flood, God gives favor to Noah. He found favor in God's sight. 
and he made his covenant with Noah. Then God wipes out all the living things that had breath in their nostrils through the flood and out comes essentially what we would call a new creation. Okay. Now, what happens is Noah begins farming and planting. He gets drunk on the wine, exposes himself naked in his tent, and his, and his son walks in and sees him naked. And he goes out and tells his brother, oh, look what happened to dad. So he's shaming, in essence, his dad. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, walked in backwards to not see their father's nakedness and covered him. So when Noah comes out of his stupor, he prophesies and he says, so he said, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brothers. Now, Canaan are the descendants of Ham. He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Now, Shem is the line from which Jesus comes, okay? Shem is the progenitor of Abraham, who's the progenitor of Jacob, who's the progenitor of Judah, who's the progenitor of David, who's the progenitor of Joseph, who is the father of Jesus. And he says, so Canaan will be the servant of the God of Shem. And what we, we see here in the flow of history is that God's covenant with Noah now passes to Shem, which ultimately is the line of Jacob slash Israel. But the next verse says this, may God enlarge Japheth. So Japheth isn't a castaway like Canaan to be the servant, he says instead, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. In other words, what he said about Canaan, you shall be the servant of servants and servant to your brothers. But in these words, we see that Japheth will dwell in the tents of Shem. That's what Isaiah is saying. Are you paying attention, Israel? I have just told you in, in chapter 53 of the suffering servant, my servant, who will remove the sins of his people. And I'm now telling you that the sons of the desolate one the people who were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, the people who were excluded from the promises of God that we read about in Ephesians, that we read about in Galatians, they will be more numerous than the sons of Shem. So spread out your tents, Shem. I got more people coming in. This will be as the apostle Paul said in Galatians 6, 16, the Israel of God. Now Isaiah goes on to say, and I'm going to give you a new name. He says that in a couple of places. And then what does Jesus say as he gets ready to leave? Baptize the people in the nations where you're going in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. You might say that that's our family name. I'm David Eugene Fowler, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. I've given you a new name. I have broken down the dividing line, the barriers I have created for myself, a people holy unto myself, which is exactly what we find in 1 Peter chapter 2. 
Now, does that seem uh, a bit far-fetched, a bit stretched? Well, let's look back again at Isaiah 54, which is where my little journey started, okay? Isaiah 54 says in verse 9, For this is like the days of Noah to me. What is this? That we would analogize and look back to saying, Ah, I see this being reflected allegorically, typologically in Noah. He's talking about my suffering servant in 53 and that they're going to be more sons of the desolate one than of the married woman who's Israel and so you need to enlarge your tents and spread out your pegs that's what he's saying it's like the days of Noah when I swore the waters of Noah should not flood the earth again it ties in perfectly to the story of Shem Ham and Japheth that's what he's talking about now let's see this over in first Peter now in chapter 3 where beginning in verse 18 he's talking about Christ dying for our sins and he analogizes this to the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few that is eight persons were brought safely through the water and corresponding to that baptism now saves you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has at the right hand of God having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Now I want to come back to that, but clearly we see the connection that the ark was Jesus Christ, a, a, a typology, an allegory of Jesus Christ into whom we come for salvation from the floods that are around us, okay? And that would include then Japheth and Shem and their descendants. And Gentiles are the descendants of Japheth who would come under Shem. Now what's fascinating is Peter says at the end there that Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God and all authorities and powers have been subjected to him. Now that's obviously what Jesus says to the disciples when he departs. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, now go. Now let's go back to Isaiah 54. In verse 15, Isaiah says, If anyone fiercely assails you, it will not be from me. Whoever assails you will fall because of you. Now, let's, let's look at that for just a moment. And then I want to come back to this idea of subjection, power, and authority being in Jesus Christ. But he's saying here, there will be people that fiercely assail you, but it will not be from me. He's going to explain what his purpose is and for, for a moment. He says, because they're going to fall, actually, because of you. Now, where do we see this concept? Well, we see it in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 11, it says this, By faith, Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen. In other words, we haven't seen rain. We, don't, we, we have no clue what you're talking about. We don't see any destruction coming. Okay? All things continue as, as they have from the beginning. They didn't see what Abraham by faith saw. It says, And in reverence he prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. 
So you see how this ties into what's being said about this again being like the days of Noah, where those who fiercely assail you will fall because of you. So what happened is Noah is building an ark. He is, let's say, advancing the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and everybody's looking at him like he's nuts, but Noah could see what the others could not see because they can only see the temporal and they don't understand the reality of the new creation that is now here that was coming and promised in the salvation of Noah from the flood. And so, by the example of Noah's faith and their lack of faith, God's destruction of them was just. Noah was saved by faith in the covenant promises of God and the others who did not see this truth, the covenant of God, God's covenant relationship, God's desire to have a covenant people, they refused it and were destroyed. So let me go back and read Isaiah 54. 15, if anyone fiercely assails you, it will not be from me. Whoever assails you will fall because of you. Then he goes on and says this, Behold, I myself have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and brings out a weapon for its work, and I have created the destroyer to ruin. Where do we see that? The Apostle Paul saying in Romans chapter 9, I raised up Pharaoh for my own glory. And in his destruction, in his hardening of his heart, of his not coming to see who I am in the face of all the miracles before him, his condemnation was just, and I destroyed him. Proverbs, it says, the wicked are made for the day of evil. God has a purpose for them. And then he gives this great and encouraging news. If we would but believe it, no weapon that is formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue that accuses you in judgment you will condemn. They not we, 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 we take that as looking at me, 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 because we have such a me-centered, self-centered, individualistic theology within the church today, but he's talking about his people, okay? There were people who suffered with the destruction of Jerusalem that certainly were within the covenant. We're not spared from suffering. In fact, in Hebrews, it says that Jesus, even though he was a son, learned obedience through what he suffered. This is not a promise that you and I are not going to suffer in the days that are coming, but it is to say that ultimately, as it says in the next verse, we will be vindicated by God and our perseverance. And that's what he says. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. So no weapon will prosper against God's people and his church and the gates of hell will not prevail or withstand its assault because we, like Jesus in whose image we are being restored and remade, came to destroy the works of the devil. First John, I think it's chapter three. But see, because we've lost this flow of history, because we've treated 
the Old Testament as data, as facts, as an evolution of, well, this happened, so that happened, so this happened, so that happened, which is an evolutionary view of the world, and we do not see the hand of God working to bring about a new creation and a restoration of all things. And when that eschatology was lost, the church became irrelevant in the sphere of law and government. And my prayer and my hope is that today's podcast, this series of podcasts, the work of the Family Action Council of Tennessee, casts a vision of hope, a living hope rooted in the living God who, as Peter said in the context of talking about Noah, is joined to Jesus Christ who has all power and all authority and will condemn the covenant breakers. He will turn them into the servants of Shem and Japheth. And I hope you'll join me next week as we look at why this interpretation can be taken as absolutely true because it's rooted in something that I had never understood or been told about, and I want to share it with you next week. So join me next week for God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.factennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.